Okay, well, we are uh, looking this evening um, specifically at um, re reading and interpreting the uh, narratives. We're going to look at that genre. You'll remember um, last time we met, we looked at the genre of the epistles and um, looked specifically at uh, the structure, how the structure of uh, ancient epistles can give us indications, right, about what the letter is going to be about. You, you have these basic elements of the greeting, um, oftentimes, especially in Paul's letter, you have thanksgiving um, followed by the body, and then you have a, a closing uh, greeting, final, final greeting. And uh, of course, we saw as well that, you know, if one of those elements is missing, that may indicate something as well. So again, uh, if you'll remember, you know, most of Paul's have uh, a thanksgiving, except for the letter to the Galatians, which is, his, is basically his harshest letter, right? Um, so the absence of an element can, can give us an indication and tell us about some of the things that are, are going to occur in the letter. Uh, we saw as well about the epistles that they are occasional, right? They address specific situations. You you read through these letters and you, you quickly recognize, or are paying attention, right, that there are specific issues that are going on in these various churches um, or with various individuals who, uh, you know, one of the apostles is, is writing to, uh, whether that is a, uh, you know, doctrinal heresy as in the case of the Galatians, whether it's divisions with the case of Corinthians, right, there are specific issues, specific concerns that are on the minds of believers, and we have to recognize what those occasions were, and after we've understood that proper context, right, then we can start thinking through, okay, what's the application now um, for where we are, right? Uh, we looked at briefly as well the importance of paying attention to uh, both the details of a letter and reading it as a whole, right? So, so one of the things I was I was talking about is whenever you sit down to read a letter, you want to just, you know, set aside some time, just kind of go from beginning to end to get sort of that big picture. What's the, what's the main argument? Often it, it is the case that, right, these, these, um, uh, the, the authors, the apostles um, can have a long sustained argument. Um, the, the, the letter to the Corinthians, I, I think, is a little bit different because, you know, there's sort of breaks throughout the letter where it's like, uh, okay, I heard about this situation, and now you have questions about this situation, and, and he's just addressing each one at a time. But you think about a letter like Romans or Ephesians or Galatians, there's uh, one long argument that, that's being made, and, of course, it has uh, different parts to it. So you want to get a picture of the whole in mind, and then you want to get into those details. And we looked about uh, uh, why it's important, right, to pay attention to some of those, you know, connective words. It's real easy just to sort of glance over, you know, when you see that for word or therefore, right, you want to figure out what it's there for. What's the, what's the argument that's being made? Or, um, you know, you see a phrase like so that or with a result that. That's an important phrase that helps us to sort of get into the mind of the, the writer to see how he's thinking through certain truths, certain works that God has done, and then those, those implications, right? What are they for? So those are, those are sort of great little 
indicators where you just want to stop and then really wrestle with, you know, what's the, what's the argument and, and point that's being made here. But like I said, we're going to look at um, biblical narratives tonight, and I want to begin just by giving you um, sort of a few basic points and some basic facts about um, the narratives. Um, now, of course, narrative comprises the vast majority of Scripture. Um, it's something like around 60% or so of all of Scripture is, is narrative. And that's even the case in, uh, in the New Testament, right? If you, if you include the Gospels, sometimes, um, sometimes scholars will consider the Gospels as like a separate genre, but um, it's, I mean, it's very similar. And uh, certainly um, Luke and Acts, which are, you know, basically part one and, and part two of, of, of Luke's writings, um, that's, about, that's about a quarter of the whole New Testament, just Luke-Acts right there, right? So the vast majority of Scripture is written uh, in narrative. Um, narratives are, are also, of course, not just a, uh, a pure genre. And, and, and what I mean by that is that, of course, when you read through the narratives, sometimes you come across other genres mixed in with that narrative. Very often it's the case that it's, it's poetry, right? Um, and, uh, of course, when you're reading through your, you know, your own Bibles, most of them will indicate, you know, when you have come across some poetic section like the Song of Moses or the Song of, of Deborah that's within the midst of a narrative. So sometimes, again, when you're reading through narratives, you may come across other genres uh, as well. Um, biblical narratives are also um, not just an assembly of ancient facts or ancient events. And uh, what I mean by this is that the, uh, the authors of the various narratives are not just giving us prominent historical details or, or not just a purely historical account of things that happened in the past. Um, for example, if you read through something like um, the um, ancient Jewish historian Josephus's works on, say, the, the, war, the wars of the Jews. Uh, Josephus is really just interested in telling the historical facts of like, what happened to the Jewish people, who were the political parties that were involved, uh, who were the different Jewish sects that were around at the time. Of course, he even mentions, uh, you know, Christians and, and John the Baptist, right? He's, he's acting like purely a historian. He has sort of no theological intent behind um, what he's doing other than um, to act as a historian and to record uh, events that took place in the first century uh, especially. Um, this is just pure history. But the, uh, the, biblical, the biblical writers are writing history plus, right? It's, uh, they are certainly not um, being ahistorical, but they're doing more than just writing details about things that happened in the past. They are recounting real, true, historical events but the history that they are recounting and the way that they are recounting it is intended to communicate 
certain theological messages. Right? There's, a, there's a point that's always related to something that God is doing uh, in the world. It's, very often it's tied to some promise that he's made in the past or even some warning that he has made and the, the biblical authors in their narratives are both communicating history and showing us God's works in that, in that very history. Um, so, for example, just to give you a couple of uh, examples of what I'm uh, talking about, um, the book of Judges is not just a book about various wars that the Israelites were involved in, right? It's not just, a, it's not just about a conflict with the, the Canaanite peoples. The very way that it is written is intended to communicate a message, a theological message about the, the nature of the Israelites, the corruption of the Israelites, their, their downward spiral, if you will, into ultimately becoming just like the nations around them, right? It's a, it's a book, of course, that picks up after the narratives of Joshua, which itself picks up after Deuteronomy and Numbers, right? It's, it's tied into one larger story, and the author of Judges is wanting the readers to understand that Israel has sunk into the depths of depravity. By the time you get to the end of the book, you're, you're not just thinking, oh, okay, these are interesting things that happened, you know, in the ancient world, in Israel, in the land of Canaan. No, no, no. You, you understand God had warned about idolatry, about becoming like the nations, and now the author is showing us how all of these particular historical events are proving those warnings to be true, right? So there's a theological message tied in with the history. Um, you can think of, as well about Genesis, right? The book of Genesis. This is not a book that is just providing historical details about the lives of the patriarchs or even the beginning of the world. There are theological messages and points. There are promises that are being made and being kept. There are events that are recorded in such a way that they, they are intended for you to make a connection between one event and another, right? So you can think about uh, one that I mentioned this morning, right? How you have Abraham, for example. God enters into a covenant with Abraham. Abraham is a covenant partner with the Lord. And, and, and then we're told about this event in Abraham's life where he goes down into the land of Egypt. There's a conflict with Pharaoh. The, the Lord delivers him from Pharaoh, and then he returns back to the land of Canaan, which is then, of course, paralleled in Joseph and the rest of the Israelites going down into Egypt. There's a conflict with Pharaoh. The people of Israel cry out to the Lord, and he delivers them. That's intentional. Moses is doing that intentionally so that we can make the connections with the patterns. God is doing something consistently with his people, and the author wants us to see those patterns. Now, this has to do a lot with what's called typology, and uh, we'll get into that in more detail in a, in a, later, uh, a later session. But for, for now, just recognize that one of the things when you're reading 
the, the various narratives throughout Scripture, is you want to pay attention to those patterns, right? Oftentimes, they, they stand out, too. Remember, uh, we were reading through, you know, First and Second Kings, and it is very clear that the author is making a clear connection between Elisha and Elijah, right? Elisha is basically carrying out the identical ministry of Elijah, and Elijah, the way his life is recorded, is intended for you to recognize that he's a, he's a Moses-like figure. You know, he, he, he meets with the Lord on Mount Horeb. He, 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 he sees, he has a, a sort of a vision with the Lord. Um, and it, it's like Moses being recapitulated, right? All those things are intentional, and so you want to pay attention to those, those patterns as well. So the point being here is that there is, in all narratives, a theological message that is being communicated, and as careful readers of these narratives, we, we ultimately need to discern what that message is. Right? Again, it's not just about reading history and then drawing some moral principle for it. Every single account, every single event that is recorded has some point with the whole. There's a reason why the author includes these events uh, when, when they do. Right? Now, um, having said that, there are some, uh, I think we need to recognize, who take that fact that narrative authors are including and excluding certain historical details to make their points to mean that these narratives aren't historical at all. So, so people who are um, very critical of Scripture, or sometimes you find this in more mystical traditions, uh, people who will say, you know, the, the Bible, the narratives are a very theological work, uh, which, which is absolutely true, but, but sometimes that means it's ahistorical, right? Uh, so, so oftentimes, critical readers, if you will, or even mystical readers um, can take the very true fact that the Bible is including and excluding certain things to make theological points to mean that it's not historical at all. Uh, but again, we need to, when we're reading, listen to what the text says about itself. And the text of Scripture, even in the narratives, makes it very clear that the biblical authors are interested in both things. Right? It's not one to the exclusion of other. Uh, they are interested in one, historical accuracy, and two, a theological message about the promises of God, the covenant faithfulness of God, the covenant unfaithfulness of God's people, and, and we could go on even more. And uh, one of the, the most obvious indicators that the biblical authors were interested in recording accurate history is the fact that they often take very great pains to give particular historical details that lets you know that this or that event happened and you can verify it with your own eyes. Right? Um, so, for example, if you turn with me to uh, Joshua chapter 4, I'll just kind of show you one example of this, and um, there's several of these in Joshua, several um, throughout uh, the various narratives, you find them in Genesis as well. Um, Joshua chapter 4, and um, Joshua is going to explain um, 
why certain memorial stones that during his day you could go and see were there. So Joshua chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, let's let's read from verse 1 down to uh, verse 7. We read here, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, take 12 men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, take 12 stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them over with you and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe, and Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask in time to come, what do those stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. So these are stones that, like Joshua is saying, in the future, your children are going to see it. And then they're going to ask you, what do these stones mean? And then you're going to explain to them what actually happened. And so, of course, if you're reading in Joshua's day or even just shortly after Joshua's day, this this is a detail that you could you could go and see. And if the author is just sort of making things up, right, well then obviously anybody could just go and say, well, this this, this doesn't even exist, right? Obviously this is just sort of, these are made up uh, details here. And uh, notice as well, further down in in verse 9, what it says. It says, verse 9, And Joshua set up twelve stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood, and they are there to this day. Right? So when the author is writing this book, those who are reading it, reading this phrase, they are here this day, can go and they can look and they can see. Right? I think about as well what we were reading uh, this morning from um, Acts chapter 2, right? where, um, where Peter is talking about the, the fact that David had died. Right and, and and been buried and he's like what you know I I'm pretty sure I can verify with that you know with you right now like we we know where he's buried sort of thing right that th- these are these are statements that are made which would not be made if the author was not interested in actual real historical events right that's the point now um, sometimes having said that sometimes an author will provide historical details, but he's not necessarily concerned with the chronology of the event, right? when it actually happened. Right? So the author, the author may not be interested in giving a chronological account, but the events that he's recording are still historical. And, and you can see an example uh, of this, what I'm talking about with this in the uh, Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 2, 
And uh, Mark's gospel um, is, is not, he's not so much interested in the timeline of, of the events that he's recording throughout the gospel. Now, of course, it eventually progresses in a fairly chronological ma- manner when you get to the end of the gospel and you've got Jesus' uh, crucifixion, uh, right? But, but generally, throughout the gospel, he's not interested in, you know, this happened and then this happened and then this happened. And you can just see, I mean, here in, in chapter 2, verse 23, notice what he says here. He says, um, one Sabbath, he, that is Jesus, was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain, right? Um, the, the point here is John, or, or I mean, Mark is, is not saying that this Sabbath occurred right after the events of, you know, the early part of chapter 2 or the later part of chapter 1 or right before chapter 3. He's just saying, right, one Sabbath, these events happened. These are real historical events, but he was not in the gospel concerned about making sort of an accurate chronological account of the events of Jesus' life, which is a different approach of writing a gospel than you find in, say, the gospel of Luke, where Luke is. He states in the beginning of the gospel, he is giving an orderly account of the events of Jesus. And he's following uh, the, the, the timeline of those events, beginning with Jesus' birth, and then, of course, ending with the, uh, the death, burial, and resurrection, and then um, and the book of Acts follows. Now, this is also cons- confirmed, the, the fact that Mark is not primarily concerned with chronology. This is also confirmed by um, an early church father named Papias, who wrote a lot about where the different letters and gospels came from, who who wrote them and where they were. And um, of course, this isn't, you know, whenever we read anyone from um, church history, any church fathers, it doesn't mean that everything they wrote is exactly uh, how it happened, but it does give us an insight into some um, early uh, um, uh, early church views. And it's generally the case that most everything that Papias has written about the, um, um, the various letters and the Gospels and when they were written are, are pretty accurate. But here's what Papias says about um, the Gospel of Mark. He says, um, and, and Papias is writing around um, the year 130 A.D., right? so about, you know, about 100 years after uh, Christ, not long after the Apostles. And, and it says, and the elder, which is probably a reference to uh, the Apostle John, and the elder uh, used to say this, so, so he's recording John's words here. Um, says, Mark, having become Peter's interpreter, wrote down accurately everything he remembered, though not in order, right? though not in order, of the things either said or done by Christ. For he neither heard the Lord nor followed him, but afterward, as I said, followed Peter who adapted his teachings as needed, but had no intention of giving an ordered account of the Lord's sayings. Now now we know, right, even from the the New Testament letters, that Mark was a a companion with uh, with Peter, and tradition has it that he wrote the Gospel of Mark probably sometime when when he was in 
Rome, uh, but then according to Papias as well, um, the accounts that he has of, of Jesus come from, come from Peter. So that's what Papias says. He's, he's not concerned about chronology as much as he is, is the events and, and what Jesus said. And the point is, is that narratives are, um, they're clearly un- intended to be understood as historical, uh, but they may not be uh, o- always giving a, an exact like chronological you know, timeline of these events. Now, um, some guidelines for reading um, the biblical narratives. Um, This first point is a point about um, avoiding drawing the wrong conclusions or or the wrong points of application, okay? So here's the first one. Not everything in a narrative is meant to be taken as normative for us today. In fact, most everything in a narrative is not intended to be taken as normative. In other words, recorded events may not be intended to give us just some moral lesson, you know, like uh, the story of David and Goliath is about us conquering the Goliaths in our lives, right? That's not, uh, that's not the point of the text. Uh, But also, they may not be intended to show us what our experience with God should be like. Uh, For example, if if God did something for someone in a narrative, that we should should expect the same thing to happen to us today. The question we have to ask whenever reading a narrative is, again, Why has the author included a particular event where he has? What point is he trying to make? And I want to give you some examples of of this kind of error in in reading narratives. So um, the rest of this will largely sort of deal with with the book of Acts and and the gospel of John. But with respect to the book of Acts... um, Acts is often used in various ways to teach what our experience of the spirit of God's works should be like today. Like it is a template of how church life and how the church throughout the world should be operating from this moment forward. For example... A lot of people look at the day of Pentecost as if that's supposed to be the normative experience of Christians whenever the gospel is preached. And if it's not, I mean, if there's not thousands of people coming to Christ with great displays of um, charismatic gifts or, or supernatural signs and wonders, there's something wrong. It's an indication that, you know, the church is dead or or something like that. The question is, is that Luke's point? When he's writing Acts, is that Luke's point to say that these events at Pentecost are events that we should expect to occur again and again and again? I might suggest that Luke 
is doing rather uh, something else. He is connecting this event to a larger biblical um, idea or a, 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 a um, let, me, let me rephrase this. He is connecting the events of Pentecost to earlier events in Genesis. Okay, so that, that's one thing that I would suggest is going on here. Namely, that the events of Pentecost are providing a reversal of the judgment at the Tower of Babel, where you will remember in judgment, God scattered and confused all of the tongues and languages of the peoples. But now, at the day of Pentecost, everyone is hearing the word of God in their own language. There's no confusion. It's like the curse is being reversed because of the outpouring of the Spirit of God. That, that's one thing that in the narrative um, I would suggest Luke is doing. Or is he connecting this, these events of chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, is he connecting this to chapter 1, where Christ commissioned the apostles to be his witnesses, beginning with Jerusalem and then, of course, going to the ends of the earth? Or is he showing this event was in fulfillment of what, of the, what the prophet Joel said about the outpouring of God's Spirit on his people? Or is he showing us the, the, uh, the fulfillment of Christ's words that he would build his church? Right? Is he demonstrating the fact that the church is being founded at this moment in a miraculous way. I think all of those different things are at play in the narrative, and you can explain those different things from the narrative itself. The point, though, is that the narrative itself indicates what the point of the narrative is, and it is not always, the point is not always and you, reader, should expect this to happen again. Right? Or, to give another example from Acts, some charismatics, especially, um, for example, they, they will look at the supernatural manifestations of the Spirit in Acts. And they will argue that that must be every believer's experience of the Spirit. And if it is not, we don't have biblical Christianity. If we have not received an outpouring of the Spirit that has caused us to speak in foreign tongues, we are absent the Spirit. Now, I want you to consider with me for a moment what is said in Acts chapter 10 verses 44 to 48, right? This is an example of the gospel going forward to, to, to people, in this case, Gentiles. And when the gospel is heard in a dramatic way, the Holy Spirit comes upon these Gentiles and there is a very clear 
supernatural conversion of these people that results in them speaking in foreign tongues. Notice Acts chapter 10, verses 44 to 48. Uh, Peter, or it says um, in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, as he's, he's explaining the, the gospel, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. Then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Now as we read a text like this, we should be asking the question, why is Luke telling us about this? What is the significance of this event within the narrative of the book of Acts. And I would suggest that it is not to say that this should be every believer's experience with the Spirit. Because he tells us, of course, of other people having miraculous encounters with God and not speaking in tongues. You can think, for example, of the conversion of Paul on the Damascus Road. I mean, that's a supernatural encounter. There's no indication, though, that he goes on and starts speaking in tongues, right? Or you can think of um, Acts chapter 16, where you have the conversion of Lydia and her household, and, and how Luke says that the Lord opened up her heart to pay attention to the words that were being spoken to her. She's converted, and there's no sort of dramatic um, outpouring of the Spirit that results in the speaking of tongues. Right? So, so throughout the narrative, throughout Acts, people come to Christ, they are genuinely born again. They have the Spirit, and they're not speaking in tongues. Which tells us, or it should tell us, that this is not a requirement. This is not, when we read Acts 10, this is not some normative experience that we should expect all people to have. Because that doesn't even take place throughout the book of Acts. No, one of the things that is going on here in the book of Acts, especially in the context of chapter 10, is this question about the relationship between the Jews and the Gentiles. That is, of course, front and center. Before Peter goes to preach the gospel, right, to these, um, to these Gentiles, you'll, you'll remember at the beginning of chapter 10, the Lord gives him a vision, right, the same vision um, multiple times, three times, um, that's basically making the point to him that all the things he thought were unclean have been made clean. Right? Because of the work of Christ, those things he used to consider unclean 
which, which, which um, excuse me, um, um, included also the Gentiles, right? The Gentiles are an unclean people. Um, God is saying to him, what I have called clean, you know, don't, don't call unclean. And then he is sent to go preach the gospel um, to the Gentiles. And I want you to notice as well um, that the Holy Spirit's miraculous manifestation in these Gentiles was aimed at confirming that the gospel was going out even to the Gentiles, right? So notice, notice what is said again in verse 45. It says, the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. Right? How that's worded right? indicates like this is, this is the surprise. It's really not so much the, the work of the Spirit as it is the Spirit coming to these Gentiles. Even the Gentiles are receiving the Spirit. Notice as well in, in verse 47, Peter responds to, to what is going on. He says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? God is reconciling and bringing together both Jews and Gentiles into one new man, one new body. And throughout the narrative of Acts, that's what Luke is demonstrating. That's the significance of these events in chapter 10. When you get into chapter 11, this is further confirmed because Peter there reports these events to the Jewish church in Judea. And the conclusion that the church draws from these events is stated in verse 18. Where it says there, then to the Gentiles also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Right? That's the point of the narrative. The narrative itself is explaining what the point is. It's not, and again, this is going back to this, this point on not everything is normative. It is not oh, we, we see these things happening to Cornelius and his household and the Philippian jailer, and this is what we need to be looking for. That's not it. The narrative tells us the point. And the point is that the gospel, if you think back to chapter 1, the gospel's going to the ends of the earth. And the Lord is reconciling a people for himself from all of the peoples in the world. So again, not every event in a narrative is meant to be normative for us. What is normative for us is the point of the text, right? What the narrative itself is emphasizing, that's what's normative for us. Now, another thing about reading narratives is that it is, uh, of course, very important to pay attention to the context. And of course, context is important in any genre, but I think especially so in narrative. Um, whenever you're reading narrative, just like in this, this, this example of, uh, of the book of Acts, you want to make sure that you're reading each section of the narrative in light of the whole, right? 
And again, this, this Acts example is, is another good example. Luke is recording here in, in the text we just looked at the response of the Jewish church to the work of the Spirit on the Gentiles, and this itself connects to the earlier point in chapter 1 about the gospel going forth to the ends of the earth. Right? So if, we, if we're always keeping the whole of the narrative in mind, it will help us make sense of each particular paragraph, right? Each particular event that's recorded. Why is this here? What's the significance of this event, right? Well, it, it ties in with that whole point that begins in the beginning of the book. Right? You can think of another example. Um, reading John's prologue, basically the first 18 verses of John's gospel, reading that in light of the rest of his gospel. And when we do that, we see that all throughout his gospel, he is showing us that this eternal word, who he mentions right in the very beginning of the gospel, is indeed the only begotten Son of God. He is showing us throughout the gospel that his own, that is the, 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 the Son's own people, Jesus' own people, did not receive him. Right? That's one of the themes throughout John's gospel is the constant rejection of Jesus by those who were supposed to be his own people. His conflict with the Pharisees where he's saying, you know, Abraham's not your father. Your father is the devil. Um, or all of the disciples who were with him and who were following him everywhere because they wanted to receive this, this uh, you know, they had been fed all of this bread and all the fishes and they wanted more food and they're coming after him and then after he starts explaining to them who he is, no one can come to me unless the Father uh, who sent me draws him after this whole explanation about the fact that he is the one who comes down from heaven. What happens? They leave. They abandon him. He has offended them, and they're gone. John's gospel in the very beginning prepares us for that. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But all who did receive him were given the right to be children of God. Right? So you want to you read, uh, of course, even the beginning of narratives in light of what is to come later as well. Um, another helpful thing when reading these narratives is to pay attention to editorial comments right, by the narrator himself. Um, an author will often make a comment in the narrative to interpret the meaning of what is being said or, or what is happening. And a couple examples of this we can think about from gospel, uh, John's Gospel um, as well. Of course, um, one very important statement is at the end of John's Gospel, and uh, this is where he says in, in verse 30, now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, uh, which are not written in this book. This is a chapter 20, verse 30. I can't remember if I said the chapter. Um, but he says, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Right? John is, of course, telling us in this editorial comment the whole purpose of every event that he's mentioning. 
But why does he talk about, you know, this, this feeding of the 5,000 in, in John chapter 6? Why does, he, why does he talk about this encounter with Nicodemus where he talks about the new birth by, by the Spirit? Right? Well, all of this, everything that he chooses to include in the gospel is so that we, as the readers, will recognize that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Christ, which is an Old Testament category, right? He's the Messiah. So he wants us to have that Old Testament in mind, everything that it said about the Messiah, and then when we see what Jesus is doing, he fits the description. He is the Messiah. And that by believing in him, we will have life in his name. So those editorial comments sort of give, a, um, give an overview, right, for how we are to understand what's going on in a narrative. Um, there's another example we could look at in, in John's Gospel. In chapter 2 and uh, verse uh, 21, I'll just read it for you. It says, uh, John chapter 2, verse 21 um, when, when Jesus is, is talking about, um, he, he says to the Jews, you know, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And in verse 21, John says, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. Right? So that's a, a narrative, an, an editorial comment that is shaping how we are to understand this interaction between Jesus and, and the Jews. What, what do his words actually mean? So, so when an editor gives us certain comments, right, we need to pay attention to those and they can help us understand uh, what he's doing. You also want to pay attention to thematic statements. Thematic statements. So an example of this would be in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where um, Jesus, of course, he's speaking to his disciples, and he says to them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I say that that's a thematic statement because that's what the rest of the book of Acts is about. They start in Jerusalem. Right? And then they go from Jerusalem to, to Judea and then to Samaria. And to the end, by the time you get to the, the end of the book of Acts, they're at the, they're at the ends of the known earth. Right? So when, when you have a narrative and you have these statements, maybe at the beginning and maybe a few, few chapters in, that are basically summarizing what the whole book is about, th those can also be very helpful in understanding the purpose of the narrative. You also ought to pay attention to repetition. Pay attention to repetition. Um, of course, the biblical authors were not um, typing on a computer and having access to bold and italics, right? So if they want to emphasize something, they have to use repetition. Whenever you come across you know, the same word or the same phrase or the same theme over and over again, it, that's their way of going, Bold, underline, italics. You pay attention to this. So, so one example um, I'll give you is in Mark's Gospel. And in Mark's Gospel, he is frequently pointing out the massive crowds following Jesus 
and being amazed at his teaching. In all, I mean, virtually in every single chapter of, of Mark's gospel, we are constantly told about these crowds that are going after Jesus, marveling at Jesus, finding him so amazing. Until you get to the end of the gospel and Jesus' betrayal. And from that moment on, every single mention of the crowds are crowds that are against him. That he's making the point that they turned on him. That they were with him throughout his whole ministry. And yet then, when, when, it, when it was, um, when it was I guess it, to, to use the language of, of Luke's gospel, when it was the hour of the Pharisees, the crowds turn against him. And they, um, they, they confront him with swords, with clubs. They shout out to Pilate for Pilate to crucify him and for Pilate to give them Barabbas. The constant mention of the crowds throughout the gospel tells you, I need to pay attention to this. Because it's, 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 going to, it's going to indicate something. And, and what it indicates in, in, in Mark's gospel is a significant change towards Jesus. Right? Um, repetition of events, uh, of people, of places, um, also indicates the presence of a type. I won't get in that, into that um, tonight. We'll look at that in more detail when we get to um, typology. But again, you, know, you think about that Abraham going down to Egypt and then coming out. That's an example of an event that occurs over and over again, which is foreshadowing events to come. Right? And then the last thing, we'll end with this, is um, a, a help for um, understanding what's going on within narratives is to consult biblical commentary. And this is what I mean. I don't mean... Um, I don't mean, you know, a commentary that, you know, you go buy, you know, Amazon or something like that. I mean, when the, when the Bible itself is commenting on the events of a narrative, right? So, for example, um, in Psalm 106, we read in verse 16 uh, to 18, a biblical commentary on the events of Numbers 16 and Korah's rebellion. And it says there, when men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. Now, what this short little section in the Psalms tells us is that this conflict between Moses and Korah and Dathan and Abiram, at root, the sin issue that was involved was jealousy. They were jealous, fundamentally, that they were not given the same kind of access into the Holy of Holies, or the same ability to offer the sacrifices. They were not given the prominence that Moses and that Aaron had. They became jealous, and that's what led to their rebellion. Right? So, so when, there are, when there are places in the Bible itself that comments on prior text and gives an explanation, we need to take those inspired words as, as they are. This morning, um, you know, we're looking at the Psalms. We read from Acts chapter 2. Peter explains 
how it is that Acts, or excuse me, that Psalm 16 is a prophetic psalm about Christ. That even though David is speaking these words and he's speaking in the first person, he's speaking as a prophet about Christ, right? So that, that's an example, right, of the, of the Bible commenting on um, prior texts of Scripture and, and prior uh, narratives as well. So we want to pay attention to those and they can help us um, to interpret these narratives um, correctly. So those are just some, some things to, to keep in mind, some guidelines when we're reading these narratives that can help us, um, of course, to, to avoid um, certain errors, um, but then also um, to read them accurately and to understand what the author's intention, both the human author and the divine author's intention is in writing these, these narratives for us. So I'm going to stop there. We'll, we'll close with prayer, and then if you guys have any questions afterwards, we can, we can talk about them. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, again, we thank you for your word, and, and we thank you that um, you speak to us in a, a variety of ways in, in, many different, uh, in, in many different genres. Um, Lord, you, you tell us a, a grand narrative, a grand story about what you have been doing in the world, and we are grateful to be able to see the fullness of revelation um, being fulfilled in Christ himself. We do pray, Lord, that whenever we are reading Scripture, that we would not go beyond what is written, um, that we would always ground all of our beliefs, all of our doctrines, all of our practices within the text itself, and that you would help us to understand your own mind through the words that you have inspired to be written. And so, Lord, teach us as we are um, those, as, as, as Jesus says, we are those who are taught by God if we are believers in Christ. We do pray that you would teach us, and show us who you are, show us your ways, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.